Our second reading comes from the book of Genesis. A bit of backdrop might be helpful. We pick up near the end of the story of Jacob. Jacob, you'll recall, is one of two twin brothers. When Jacob and his slightly older brother Esau are born, Jacob comes out gripping the heel of Esau and basically spends the rest of his life trying to pull himself forward in front of his brother. As a young man, he tricks Esau out of a blessing, and Esau is thrown into this murderous rage, essentially, and Jacob flees for his life. He spends the next 20 years or so in a distant land with his uncle Laban, where he he marries children and he makes a life for himself until Laban it turns out is just as much a trickster as Jacob and Jacob senses that it's time to go home. Our passage this morning puts us on the bank of home. He is at the river Jabbok. He is about to cross over where he will meet for the first time in decades man who the last time he saw him was not very happy. And to make matters worse, Esau has sent 400 men to the other side of the Jabbok, an army if you will, and Jacob is terrified. And Jacob, somewhat curiously, out of his terror, sends his wives and children and concubines across the river first. And then he sends his cattle and livestock, his money, essentially, across the river. And then he spends a night by himself, alone. So let us listen now for a word from God, hearing these verses from the 32nd chapter of Genesis. That night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And asked him, What is your name? And Jacob answered, Jacob. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But the man replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled, A Limp in Our Living. Gracious God, however it is we brought ourselves to this place this day, we pray that
pray that your spirit will quiet our minds and our hearts. That through its work, the words of this ancient story and the words proclaimed today will somehow become your words. The words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will indeed be pleasing and glorifying in your sight. You and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. So I read not long ago that in World War II, there were these radio operators in Britain who were called interceptors. They were almost entirely women, thousands of women, who worked day and night manning desks with headphones on, and their job was to listen to German military broadcasts in Morse code. Every day, day in and day out, they would sit and record what it is they heard. Morse code, of course, perhaps for the younger generation, is made up of dots and dashes of a prescribed length. But the thing about Morse code is that whenever a human is the one broadcasting it, it's almost impossible to transmit it perfectly, to get just the right length and rhythm for each dot and each dash. And so what you discover as you listen to Morse code operators is that each operator has this unique, what they call in the business, I guess, fist, this unique signature, this unique rhythm that every operator has that is just there. So these interceptors, these women, as they sat there, they would get to know the operators on the other end. They didn't necessarily know who they were, but they gave them names like Oscar. And they would listen to Oscar day in and day out, and they would discover Oscar works on a shift system, and he's usually at his desk from 12 to 4. And they'd listen a little bit more, and they'd triangulate where the signal was coming from, and they'd discover that Oscar worked for an air wing. All of this, of course, is being broadcast in code itself. So they're just deciphering this through his fist, through his unique way of broadcasting. And after a while, they would discover Oscar's in southern Italy. And if the next day they woke up and Oscar was in North Africa, they would have some valuable intelligence. They might not know what it is Oscar is saying in his code, but they have been able to put together that his unit, his air wing, is no longer where it once was. It's now in this new place. It allowed the allies, in this case, to track specific units all around Europe simply by the unique fist of these different Morse code I was thinking about those interceptors as I read this story earlier this week from Genesis. This story that for many is one of the most pivotal in all the Bible. It's pivotal in part because it's at this moment early in Genesis where the promise of God to have a Davidic line, a line that will lead through the generations and decades and centuries eventually to this man named Jesus of Nazareth, it is at risk of ending before it even begins here on the banks of the Jabbok. If Jacob does not succeed in his wrestling match, the line will go no further. 
But it's also pivotal because it's an early lesson for all of us on the character of God. It answers certain questions for us that we wonder about God from time to time, such as, is God distant or does God come down and engage us right where we are? Does God silence our struggles or struggle with us in the questions and in the doubts and the regrets of life? Is God one who is easily overcome by the weight of human anger and fear, or can God strive with us in it? How we answer those questions based on this reading impact how we read all the other stories throughout Scripture. But the real lasting legacy of this story for me is its ending, right? The wrestling finishes on the day of reunion between Jacob and Esau. It arrives and the sun rises and Jacob limps off towards the light. Jacob's limping is not mentioned anywhere else in Genesis, but I like to imagine that it stays with him from that point until his dying day. That it becomes a kind of unique signature, if you will, that fits with who and whose Jacob is. And what more appropriate sign of a life changed by God Most of the really faithful people that I know, most of these people who I sit with and it dawns on me after a few minutes of conversation, oh my gosh, this person is a real Christian. Most of those people have what I can only characterize as a spiritual limp. They're often kind of rough at the edges. These are people who have faced real hardship in life people who know what it's like to wrestle in the darkness, people who don't always smile at every joke or reference scripture at every opportunity or even ask for prayer. But you can tell as you sit with them, you can tell by the words that they speak and the way they speak them, that here in front of you is someone who has encountered and been changed something far greater than anything we can explain. Oftentimes these people are characterized by things like lack of ego, by a deep empathy for people who are wholly different than them. They often have this sort of non-judgmental air about them. You can sense as you talk with them that they talk back to you with no ulterior motives. They don't have an agenda. Imagine that talking to someone who doesn't have an agenda for what they want to get out of you. There's an element in these people with a spiritual limp of selflessness. You sense that here in front of you is someone who does indeed know what it's like to wrestle in the night and live to see the sun rise on a new day. One of the greatest examples of, of some faithful person like this is a man named Brennan Manning. I don't know how many of you know Brennan Manning. He became well known back in the 90s with the publication of his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Brennan Manning at one point in his life was a Catholic priest, 
but for nearly all of his life, from the age of 10 or 11, was an alcoholic. He struggled with addiction. He was defrocked, disgraced, divorced, some of those things more than once. He was a man who literally and figuratively limped through life. And right near the end of his life, he published an autobiography that was titled simply, All is This. All is This. When he looks back on his life, that is how he sums it up. All is This. He writes in there, my life is this witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as much as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5, a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up in an embrace and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts, a grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request, saying, please remember me, and assures him in return, you bet. But banks to death, face to face with God, wrestling with God, Jacob the trickster, Jacob the runaway, Jacob the scared and scarred man discovered that all really is that encounter with that truth that changed the way he moved, literally limping for the rest of his life. But it's not just people, right? I told the early service this too, and I'll tell you all, I am highly suspicious of churches that are full of happy people. When I walk into a church and everyone seems happy, all my warning flags immediately shoot up into the air. I've never been quite able to articulate why I'm so suspicious of happy churches, but revisiting this story has helped to give me an idea, I think. I think I'm suspicious of happy churches because wrestling with God is dangerous work. The God who Jacob meets, right, it's this God who calls him out on the way of life that is the only way of life he's ever known, to be a trickster. It's this God who who leads him away from the comfort of relative wealth in a far-off land to the doorstep of his enemy, essentially, and tells him, okay, Jacob, time to knock. The God Jacob meets way back then, that is the same God we meet week in and week out in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who tells us to turn the other cheek, to sit with the sick, to lay hands on the dying, to be weary of the material promises of the world. The God in Jesus Christ who leads us over and over to a cross. Wrestling with God is dangerous always reminds me of that great Annie Dillard quote where she asked the question she says you know I've never been under able to understand why people in church seem like these cheerful brainless tourists the God we invoke here is a God who we should have hard hats on 
The ushers should be issuing life preservers at the door, she says. We should have seat belts for our seats in church because the waking God may sometime wake and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us in this place to a place from which we can never retreat. You can walk into a church, I think, and tell whether or not it has a I think you can look around a church and notice in about five minutes flat whether or not they are a place that welcomes the Jacob of the world. A place that talks about serving the people Jesus serves, the lost, the lonely, the least. A church that's willing to wrestle with hard truths, that's capable of being kind to and loving those who may be sitting next to you who believe or think or, God forbid, vote differently. A church that operates from a desire to live instead of a fear of dying. A church that is not always full of happy people, but is always full of joyful people. Which brings me back to those interceptors in Britain during World War II. They didn't always know what was being said, but they did know who was saying it. They were able to figure out through dots and dashes the personalities and people on the other side. Jacob's fist, his his unique signature, his mark, if you will, was his lineage. It was unconscious, it was automatic, and it was always present. Which makes me wonder, what about ours? If reports about our lives, about our church, were broadcast this day across the sea in a series of dots and dashes, how would our fist Would the people on the other end be able to detect who and whose we are? As they recorded notes in their journal about what it was we were saying, would any of those notes say, all is grace? Would the people on the other end, listening to those dots and dashes, would they be able to see the lineage in our faces? For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may the answer to those questions be Alleluia.